welcome to UO Today. I'm Paul Pepys, Director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Mark Watson, Interim Dean of University of Oregon Libraries. He also serves as Associate Dean for Research Services. Thanks, Mark, for coming on the show. My pleasure. So let's start uh, with your career trajectory. How did you come to be an academic librarian? Hmm. Uh, my, my path followed um, a traditional trajectory for people my age. I'm not sure it's representative, so representative anymore. Um, but uh, I aspired to be uh, a PhD uh, working as a faculty member in an English department. That was, if I, well, as a child, I wanted to be a cattle rancher, but uh, once I had switched over to academia, um, I wanted to be like you uh, and uh, many of my colleagues here on campus. Um, and I actually pursued a graduate degree in English literature at Washington State University um, and worked my way through the master's program, but felt like I kind of hit a wall uh, there in terms of seeing myself into the, the years and the rigor required to complete the PhD. And I was working for a professor at the time uh, who was um, on the cutting edge of using technology in the humanities, interestingly enough. He had written several uh, computer programs to analyze the text of Robert Burton's Anatomy of Melancholy. And he had a fleet of graduate students who were all entering the text on these uh, computer terminals and marking it up with what I've now come to understand is uh, uh, SGML. So, in a sense, back in 1983, I was getting some experience doing text encoding, uh, and I didn't really understand that or have an inkling of what it would come to be someday. But, uh, you know, when I, I went to talk to him about my future plans, and he said, you know, you might be cut out for librarianship and information science. And I said, oh, well, what's, what's that about? And uh, he sent me to the library across the quad and I got Peterson's guide out and uh, did a little research. And, uh, and the next year I ended up at the University of Chicago and uh, where I spent three years working on uh, a master's degree in information science. And uh, from there, I actually came to the University of Oregon, put down some roots and I've been here ever since. You know, my alma mater is the University of Chicago. Well, we share that in common with the provost. Yes, as well. I, I think I may have been there at the same time that you were there. I was there uh, eighty-three to eighty-six. I came in eighty-six. Wow! What do you know? <laughs> Small world. Yes. So my next question is about the libraries in general. Um, how many libraries are at the University of Oregon? Um, we have seven library locations, um, and a lot of people. Um, aren't aware. Uh, they, of course, know about the main library, uh, the Knight Library building on campus, and uh, they're probably aware of the Price Science Commons and Research Library, which underwent a renovation and got some press at the time. But we also, of course, have a, a library in the law school, and there is a library outpost in Portland on campus. There's a library in the Mathematics Fenton Department, and we also have a library in the College of Design. And we also have one over at uh, the Institute of Marine Biology in Charleston. 
So several uh, remote locations, if, if you will. And um, we were getting pretty good at connecting with them even before COVID. And of course now, you know, that's the way we do everything. <laughs> so you've, you've raised the question of COVID and, and uh, remote connection. Tell us a little bit about the changes that the fact that the libraries have undergone in the face of the COVID crisis since March. Well, you know, just like every organization and institution and business, um, it feels like, you know, in our city, state, region, country, um, the library has had to come to grips with how to move uh, the services that it provides online. And how do we approach supporting the students, faculty uh, in their mission to teach and do research, but mainly do it um, via electronic means. And uh, that pivot took place, you know, had to take place right away. And in some ways, it was really more of a change of degree rather than kind, because you know, many of the library's resources and uh, certainly uh, the ability to get a hold of people and work with people, we're already, uh, we're already doing that online. We just weren't doing it as intensely or as much. And so uh, we accelerated uh, the process and immediately drew up what we called a rapid response team. And this is a group of librarians and staff who immediately recognized the challenge and wanted to say, well, what do we need to get together? So uh, they went about uh, developing remote resource guides for students and for faculty, and uh, just you know, creating what we call research guides or lib guides, um, you know, to pack as much information in there as we could. And of course, the library's always had a robust website, so you know, everything that we were trying to do and communicate, we um, push to the website and uh, for the most pertinent uh, up-to-date COVID information, we even created a banner, you know, that was kind of alarming in its own way, but it was like, read this. Uh, <laughs> um, so I'd say, you know, it's just a matter of um, not so much what people talk about as a pivot, but really more, you know, fully engaging something we had, we had been doing uh, all, all along. Are there any lessons that you've learned from this intensification, things that you didn't expect to know or things that you discovered that were interesting or valuable that you might build on in the future? Well, one thing I was, I've been surprised at and continue to be amazed at really is how effectively most of our services can translate to an online venue of one sort or another. And, you know, there are even uh, things that happen in the library that are very, um, that require contact with physical materials. Like, you know, the, all of the, we still receive a lot of books and uh, journals and things that people need to actually come in contact with. But even that operation, you know, is that people were able to come in um, gather the things they needed. And then once they went home, they had the same computer set up and internet connection that they had at work and were able to basically go about that job. So with a little bit of shuttling back and forth, even some of the jobs that were most dependent 
you know, on being in the building and being able to handle uh, physical items were able to be done. So there were, ended up being very few jobs um, that actually really required, you know, having people in the building, which then of course makes you wonder, you know, about all of the, the money and investment, you know, that all of us have made in physical facilities over the years when um, <laughs> a lot of what we, we've proven that a lot of what we can do, um, we can do it without coming here. So that's, that's, I'd say that's by far and away one of the biggest surprises and biggest takeaways for me. Um, there are things that I miss um, that while I think we can carry on business, I think the human element um, has been missing to a certain extent. And I, I just realized that I enjoy being around my colleagues. Um, I just enjoy the, you know, the informal interactions, you know, that we've always been able to have the spontaneous kind of, you know, meetings or conversations that will erupt in hallways or when people stick their heads through the doors. Um, I think this is, has been a little bit more lonely. Um, I'm in my office today on campus, but in some ways it's, it's like being, it's just like being at home because everybody here is behind their closed office door. And when we go out, you know, we mask up, we stay away from each other. There aren't as many people in the building. And in some ways I'm thinking, wow, home actually is nicer because I'm closer to my couch or my fridge or some of the creature comforts that I can, that I can take advantage of. Here, I've tried to recreate that, you know, little, I've, re I've tried to recreate home and it sort of feels like duplicative and somehow, um, I don't know, excessive. Why do we all feel like we need to have a home away from home, you know, in order to do meaningful work? So I feel like a lot of it has come from, you know, not the job changing so much as a lot of the personal interactions and uh, things around the work. So you've been serving as interim dean of the library since June of 2019. What's the status of the dean search? Can you give us an update? Yes. Um, that I've been in this role, the interim role, uh, much longer than I thought I actually would. Um, the, the campus uh, found a search firm and started up um, a search for what they're going to call a, a new vice provost and university librarian. So we're transitioning away from the decimal nomenclature uh, with this particular hire. Um, and I thought, you know, things would proceed according to a timeline that would probably have had, uh, would have had somebody new, a new permanent person in place uh, by this, by July 1st, kind of at the latest. But I remember the evening of, what was it, March 11th, 12th, I was, I had put my application in for the position and this was the eve of my airport interview, which really wasn't going to involve going to an airport or flying anywhere or actually leaving my desk. But my virtual airport interview was going to occur. I received a call from the provost saying, you know, because we weren't going to be able to bring finalists in in April. We we're going to delay the VPUL search as well as the College of Design search and uh, pick them back up in the fall. Um, so that is what is happening. 
Um, although I think that we've learned a few things. We've learned that, well, we now need to proceed in a virtual matter. And we're gonna have to face the, that we live in a time when finalists for a position um, are gonna have to complete the whole thing online. And uh, we're moving ahead with that. So the search is back underway. Um, and it will depend, you know, on how quickly um, things move again. It's like we're, we've kind of took the time, this time off and now we're back in the same place that we were this time last year. So I'm hoping, you know, that winter term will see interviews occur and get somebody hired. Thanks for that update. Yeah. So uh, one of the things that the library does is collaborate with the Jordan Schnitzer Museum of Art on campus. Will you tell us a little bit about some of the collaborations between the two institutions? Well, we have, um, over time, I would say that under Adrian Lim and Jill Hartz, um, we began to um, share a lot more information and have a lot more interaction uh, between our staffs. I mean, we were invited over um, to the JSMA, we've toured their facility, um, we've met with them, uh, learned about how they do things that we do, except for different types of materials like um, inventory control and uh, supplying metadata, digitization. Um, and then Jill and Adrian applied for and successfully um, received a Mellon grant that we are about to finish up this December. And that is by far and away the biggest collaboration, you know, that, that we've ever had together. And um, faculty have worked with both JSMA and librarians. They've selected materials that reside in either or both of the locations and have created really marvelous uh, digital humanities projects. And we're currently finishing up uh, the second three uh, three more that are gonna be done here very shortly. And uh, that, that's been a, a big undertaking. And I think it's really paved the way for future collaboration. Uh, in addition to COVID, we're witnessing this reckoning on race in the United States of America and, I, and the Black Lives Matter movement. And I was wondering what are the kinds of resources that the library has developed to help people, our students and our faculty learn about diversity and inclusion? Yeah, um, for a long, long time, um, we've considered uh, the building of our collections as a way that we can really contribute uh, to the diversity, inclusion, diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts on campus is that the more um, diverse voices um, and material and that we can collect, build, put into the collection that represents uh, a different approaches and um, offers opportunities for people to explore um, topics that aren't necessarily, you know, within the old traditional um, canon. Uh, we've taken opportunity of that and we've spent a lot of money acquiring databases and other uh, resources uh, to facilitate that. Uh, we have access, for example, to like the entire text of the Chicago Defender. And we and, and for the opening of the Black Cultural Resource Center, we acquired a large database called the History Makers, which is like um, oral histories of uh, prominent uh, African-Americans and their contributions. Um, 
but more recently, you know, we've started to try and support some of the messaging that everybody has felt has been important, you know, to speak out um, in response to the murder of George Floyd. Um, the library did work um, internally to create an anti-racism uh, statement. And we put a number of actions in there that we wanted to make sure that we were going to follow up on. Um, and we also created one of these lib guides, research guides that I mentioned earlier on anti-racism. And that is something that I think is a, is a very rich um, research tool uh, that especially for students, you know, that are interested in uh, probing some of the collections that we have and uh, getting more into that area. Yes, I've checked out that particular uh, guide and it's really rich and, and uh, valuable. I'm, I'm grateful to your, your staff's work on that. It's really a, a wonderful resource for us. Um, as part of the re reckoning on race, um, the, the library has come in for some controversy around the murals that are there. Would you tell us about that controversy and how you've responded to it? Yes, the, the library has had four very large murals uh, ensconced in the historic portion of the building. So when the, the original portion of the building was, was constructed during the WPA era, and uh, these murals were uh, definitely of that era, and two artists, the Rehnquist brothers, uh, were commissioned uh, to create these murals. And they used a motif called the tree of, tree of knowledge, the tree of civilization, and they set out to depict the advancement in the arts and the sciences and the advancement in, in human achievement uh, through their work. Um, unfortunately, um, the way that those, that progress was depicted was it just, it showed that there was this clear movement, you know, from age, an age during which, uh, you know, people of color um, and uh, Aboriginal peoples or Indigenous peoples were um, at the bottom and represented the primitive stage of society. And then it went up the tree and it, everybody became more light skinned. Um, and over time, for obvious reasons, people have questioned you know, whether it was appropriate to have this very visible symbol or interpretation of the way that humanity has evolved, you know, in a building that's supposed to represent the views um, of everyone. And under Adrian Lim, um, we, I, I would say we went through a process of trying to contextualize the murals. Um, we put up signage uh, acknowledging the fact that they were um, unwelcoming and presented a view that is is no longer uh, acceptable, you know, in our society and our thinking. Uh, we did an art show that offered students uh, ways to present um, alternative uh, art to the murals. But I think what's happened in the last year is we've realized that it's not enough. We really need to take this seriously and we need to do more um, than just simply educate, although I think we always want to educate. And so the decision was made um, to cover the murals, to preserve them yet to cover them. And so we contracted with a uh, the Heritage 
Foundation uh, in Portland and uh, hired a conservator to come and assess the murals and whether they could be removed safely. It ended up they could not. So they devised a, um, a way to actually cover them. Um, and the work was completed at the this in the last week of September. And we've also put up new signage explaining um, why we did that. And, um, and I think it offers people an opportunity, essentially a blank, not a blank slate, but a new canvas, you know, on which, you know, the future uh, message that we want to portray could be, could be written or installed. Thanks for bringing us up to date on that. Yeah. So I'm going to shift a little bit and ask you about uh, open access publishing. What is open access publishing and what, what are its benefits? Why is it a good thing? Well, I think that, you know, open access publishing is, is not uh, complex. It really is sort of the, the agenda for all of us that, you know, contribute to our, the creation of original knowledge and want to put it out there for the benefit of others and society in general. So open access sort of takes this idea that the reason why we do our work is to enhance um, human society, that all efforts, more uh, efforts should be made not to have this research end up being locked away or put behind paywalls that make it hard for the people who we want to benefit to get to. Um, so it just seems like that what's happened over time, um, I think the academy in the 20th century outsourced um, the publication and distribution mechanisms for academic scholarship. Um, and that was helpful at the beginning. It was mostly academic societies and the members of those societies were the scholars themselves. So it all seemed pretty, uh, pretty cozy. But over time, uh, big business, you know, entered it for-profit publishers sprung up and bit by bit, um, we found ourselves in the position of having to buy back the research that the Academy produced for prices that kept inflating every year and inflating to exorbitant amounts. And I think a lot of people finally said, you know, this is, this is completely wrong. <laughs> uh, we want our research to be widely available. Um, we don't, we don't like this uh, situation where even we might have to ask for permission to publish our own research on our own websites, <laughs> according to some of these agreements. So there's been a big effort um, internationally as well as nationally to try and put mechanisms uh, in place that will ensure that the, our research you know, is widely available to everyone. So the library just recently announced an open access article processing charge award fund. Tell us what that is and how it will support faculty. Well, I, what's, so one of the big questions that arises is, well, what are you going to do about it? Uh, how do you change, uh, you know, this, this system that you are uh, so upset with? And what's happened, I would say in the last, uh, this first couple decades of the 21st century is that, that we are exploring different kinds of business models uh, that would be an alternative to this sort of pay to read model, that, you know, the, the subscription model that, we're, that we've been stuck with for so long. And one of the ways 
that people are trying to make uh, scholarship more freely available is that instead of paying this subscription, you essentially pay to publish. And this would be uh, an article processing charge instead of a subscription. And it would be paid by an institution, an, inst an individual, and in a lot of cases in the United States that libraries have tried to step up and help promote this particular model and provide subventions to faculty in order for them to be able to publish their research. Because um, the average cost is probably in the couple thousand dollar range to do it this way, because publishing will never be free. We want the research to be accessible to everyone, but we still have to figure out a way to pay to get it out there. So APCs is, is one model and it's one way we can help. So you've been uh, the li a librarian at U of O since 1986. How has yeah. your work changed over the years? Oh. Well, I would say, I would summarize it. I guess it'd be near the point where I'll have to, you know, think in summary terms that my, I, I think my library career has spanned the transition from analog to digital, from the era in which we used typewriters, IBM, Selectrix, to type bibliographic information onto cards that were physically taken out to a wooden catalog and a rod was pulled out, they were dropped down in and we put the, put the rod back. And in fact, when I came in 1986, one of my first jobs was to supervise card filing. Um, it, I found out that it, was, it had nothing to do with getting to supervise people. It was, it was teaching me the card filing rules. <laughs> the people that filed the cards were really good at it. So, and I remember getting my first computer um, I remember the day that the, the, they decided to give everyone a telephone. Uh, until then, we had one departmental phone that had a flag attached to it. And we would all take turns answering the phone and uh, taking messages for each other and putting them on our desks. Um, email um, has revolutionized everything you know, that we do. Um, and now it's considered the older, the older technology. But um, it's, really, it's really been that. Really, I've gotten I've gotten a, a front seat on the transition to the digital age. It's been very interesting. So this will be my last question, Mark. Um, given your long perspective, how do you envision academic libraries in the future? Yeah, I I've spent a lot of time thinking about that um, over the last last few months and. I think that the world that we're the world has changed in ways that I think we all realize are going to have a continuing impact. And I think that you know what we're going to continue to need to do is to embrace um, the techniques and technologies and ways in which we can connect people with the information that they need, however that's going to be done. And I think libraries are responsible for getting specialized services to individuals. You know, I'm thinking of graduate students and faculty and their more specialized needs, and then 
providing information for um, all the undergraduates. So there's this, there's this, the role for, you know, involvement in teaching and in supporting research, you know, is, is absolutely going to continue and be central to what we do. I think we're, we're just going to uh, continue doing it um, in ways that I probably can't even imagine yet. I mean, I think of the change that's occurred between the typewriter that was on my desk and now talking to you and doing an interview today via Zoom, um, what will happen in the next 10 years? It will really be interesting to see. <laughs> well, uh, I'm looking forward to seeing it too. Uh, thank you, Mark, for speaking with us today. It's been a really uh, good conversation. Thanks so much. Oh, thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it a lot. I've been speaking with Mark Watson, Interim Dean of the University of Oregon Libraries. Thanks for watching.